We need strength with respect to the pushers and to the drug dealers. Some countries have a very, very tough penalty, the ultimate penalty. And by the way, they have much less of a drug problem. Do what they just did in Philadelphia and Boston. And elect state's attorneys and district attorneys who are looking at issues in a new light. Welcome to What's Left, a podcast from BuzzFeed News Opinion, where we talk with people at the crossroads of the new American politics. I'm Sarah Leonard, your host in New York City. Some 40 years ago, the United States began locking up unprecedented numbers of people. Tough on crime politicians called for ever harsher penalties, while the war on drugs filled U.S. prisons. Mandatory minimums and three strikes laws forced judges to impose long sentences. County prosecutors became powerful actors who extracted punitive plea deals and filed severe charges. And of course, the entire process, arrest, conviction, sentencing, reflects the racism and class injustice of American society as a whole. Today, the U.S. leads the world in prisoners, incarcerating well over two million of its citizens. Millions more are subject to parole or probation. But a new wave of reformers has begun to challenge these trends. This is all a scam. We have been fed a scam for decades by politicians who used fear to launder taxpayers' money into jail cells, into votes. And it is time to stop and say, "Uh uh-uh, we are not doing this anymore. This is Larry Krasner. He was elected Philadelphia district attorney last year on the promise of ending mass incarceration. I spoke with Larry from Philadelphia. Welcome, Larry Krasner. Well, thanks. So I want to start right at the beginning here. You have a history of defending activists. You represented people from ACT UP, from Black Lives Matter. You sued the police 75 times. You're obviously not the most obvious candidate for DA in Philadelphia. So why did you decide to to run? Of course, you felt the system was broken in some way, but it must have been a pretty huge leap to go from being a defense attorney to occupying this office with which you had been in an adversarial relationship for years. Yes, indeed. It was a change. Why did I do it? I did it because I had been in court for 30 years watching a slow motion car crash because you basically watched more and more incarceration and the bankruptcy of our public schools, the elimination of mental health treatment and, uh, you know, the criminalization rather than medical treatment of addiction. And it wasn't doing anybody any good. Uh, We were up for yet another election where we had the usual suspects, uh, none of whom represented change, very few of whom even paid lip service to it. And it just appeared to me that if there was any chance of winning, and I figured out after a while there was some chance of winning, that I should do it. So I did. So I think something that a lot of people don't understand who don't follow these issues super closely is that people think that there are two sides where the defender's job is to zealously represent one side and the prosecutor's job is to zealously represent victims. But actually, defense attorneys and prosecutors have have different roles. And I wonder if you could explain that. Sure, in two different ways. So, you know, the the prosecution has an ethical obligation to seek justice. The defense has a more limited ethical obligation, uh, and that doesn't minimize the fact that they play an absolutely essential role, which is to zealously advocate for their client without lying, cheating, and stealing, right? Um, So, you know, the the truth is that there is almost a judicial obligation on the part of the prosecution to try to get a just outcome. It's not just to win. Uh, 
And this is where the, you know, the real crux of the matter is, because for a very long time, we have viewed courtroom as being basketball court, courtroom as being baseball field, where you have two teams, there's really nothing that is uh, sensitive or moral about what's happening. And that mentality, you know, the Vince Lombardi mentality, uh, that winning is the only thing has been pervasive in prosecutors' offices. It's the reason they have great big shredders. It's the reason we find so many people who whose DNA shows they never did it. Yet there's a confession and there's a prosecution uh, and there's documents in the homicide file, meaning the file of the police that somehow never made it into the hands of the defense that might have changed that outcome. The you know, we have to actually be serious as prosecutors about our oath to seek justice. We got to know what that means. We have to be serious about the ethical obligations that go with the office. We haven't been. It's not that hard to figure out why. It's called politics. It's called, you know, Arlen Specter, uh, who has come to our attention once again as we revisit the pretty awful things he did during the Anita Hill hearings, being the DA in Philly first, and then wanting to be something else, which he became. Uh, and unfortunately, during the Anita Hill uh, hearings around Clarence Thomas, he didn't show a better ethical standard, frankly. So it's about that. We need to have people who are in these positions of being chief prosecutor who know the criminal justice system extremely well, who didn't start out staring in the mirror and, and hum and hail to the chief in the morning. We need to have people who care about this work, who don't particularly want to run for something else and whose life's work indicates that they want the criminal justice system to be accurate, they want it to be fair, and they want it to preserve individual rights and civil rights. So... I think a lot of people, when they think about seriously carceral states, they think about Florida, they think about Texas, but Pennsylvania has plenty of its own problems. Um, something like 5,000 people in Pennsylvania are serving life sentences without the possibility of parole. Um, you know, Only Florida has more inmates serving that sentence. And so can you tell me a little bit about the terrain that you're on now? So in Philly and in Pennsylvania statewide, what we have is a state where there are eight times as many people in jail as there were about 30 years ago, which is uh, worse than the national average of five times as many people in jail. In Philadelphia, what we had recently was the most incarcerated of the 10 largest cities. And a lot of this is very confusing because Pennsylvania up until the last election has been a consistently democratic state, even though it is two big blue dots in a, uh, a giant red state. And because Philadelphia is seven to one democratic, and it's also the historic cradle of freedom. And it's also uh, a city where the majority of people are people of color. There are as many black people, about 45%, as there are white people, about 45%. So it really doesn't make a ton of sense that we would be worse than Florida and Alabama and Mississippi in some ways. And in some ways we are. For example, we, the city, and we, the state, are the absolute peak for the most juveniles who committed homicides or were involved in homicides who ended up with sentences of life without parole. We're the absolute peak in the world for that stuff. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when you see that the voters are so far away from that in Philadelphia. They are so progressive compared to the rest of the state and compared to the rest of the country. I mean, this is a city where Donald Trump only took 1-5% of the vote, 15% of the vote. And yet we find that the police union which, by which I mean the white uh, racist controlled police union endorsed Donald Trump in that city. So there's a huge disconnect here where we have a very fertile ground for change among the voters. And yet we have a criminal justice system that in many ways is stuck back in the 1950s and needs to be pulled forward. Right, which is interesting because for years, Philly, despite 
as you say, being a blue city, did elect tough on crime DAs, and so did basically everywhere else in America. I mean, this is fairly uniform, actually. And we're currently, you're sort of at the forefront of a wave of progressive DAs. And I wonder, maybe you can just speak to Philly, but but what changed? Well, I think that what has changed as is, to some extent, just an accumulation of the horrible consequences of these policies to the point where it just became unsustainable. But it's also the zeitgeist. It is a common understanding that developed over time from individual interactions of how bad this was. This is a secret you can keep for a long time because when you abuse a group of people, whether they're poor people or people of color, um, but you hide them, then people don't necessarily hear about it. You know, it's the difference between the coverage of the Vietnam War and what would have happened if there was no coverage. There's a very different popular sentiment. It's the difference between the coverage of fire hoses aimed at women who were kneeling and praying during the civil rights movement and what would have happened if the cameras weren't there. Well, the cameras aren't in our jails and they aren't in our courtrooms for the most part watching what happens. So that's how it became possible to be the most incarcerated country in the world and have a lot of people don't know. Now by a lot of people, let me tell you who I'm not talking about. African-American women knew, and they knew because one out of three African-American men in their lifetime are experiencing jail. And those are their sons, those are their parents, uh, their fathers sometimes, their uncles, their brothers. So African-American women knew because of life experience, but also because often they had to be the glue that would keep the family or keep the kids together when you had so many men who were absent or who were taken away from the communities. And millennials know. And that's very interesting to me, but millennials know if you look at their values, and this has been tested quite a bit, their values are different. And so it's not such a surprise that in the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders was the favorite of young people in essentially every single state. It's not such a surprise that they're drawn to urban centers, not such a surprise that a lot of them would rather have bicycles than cars, and that they also, in many ways, value loving what they are doing and having a sustainable lifestyle over they value amount of money. You know, one of the one of the emblems of my era was the movie Wall Street, which described a, a certain kind of ethical moral standard, uh, in some ways best personified now by Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, looking out for number one was a phrase that they used all the time. Well, millennials are not looking out for number one, actually. They're looking out for a whole bunch of numbers, and one of those numbers is one. But they're looking out for a, a collective um, wholeness, I guess I would probably say. So when you start to look at African-Americans who have experienced this, they've experienced what broken windows means and illegal stop and frisk means, you can even find among African-American police officers opposition to illegal stop and frisk because it happens to their kids, especially their boys, because it happens to them when they are out of uniform. They do what they have to because it is an organization where you take orders, but that doesn't mean they like it as much as some white officers do. But even among the younger white officers now, we're talking about the group that should be the least interested in progressive policies, at least in theory. What I find as I talk to them is that an awful lot of young white officers have a much more progressive attitude. They're not in love with criminalizing addiction. They have in many instances seen people in their own families who have ended up doing time or who have not had their issues with mental health or with drug addiction addressed in a proper way. So the accumulation of terrible stuff for 30 and 40 years has some effect, and it gets you to the point where there's enough, and there starts to be a zeitgeist. I want to dig into um, this question of police. Since you raised it, you know, 
there have been huge problems with the Philly Police Department, obviously, including it turned out that your predecessor kept a do not call list of police who he didn't think were credible to put on the stand. Famously, one of them was involved in Meek Mill's case. So tell me a little bit about what was going on there with the list, what you've done with it. And a lot of people said that, you know, the police union hated you when you were running. They obviously did not endorse you. You took a lot of criticism from the head of that union. And people said, you know, the prosecutor needs to be able to work well with the cops. That's how the system works. Um, And so tell me a little bit about what you found when you got in, stuff like the do not call list, and how that relationship is shaping up, given your commitment to end mass incarceration. One challenge I would put out to the media, because I hear this question a lot, is why do you think the head of the police union is in charge of the police department? Or why do you think the head of the police union actually speaks for the rank and file? Philadelphia has the fourth largest police force in the United States, in the sixth largest city in the United States. And that union happens to be politically powerful because every member of that uh, department, black, white, male, female, is required to be a member of that union for bargaining purposes, right? The union itself is dominated and always has been by extremely conservative senior uh, white men, some of whom have shown shocking capacity to say racist things, to describe people who oppose them as animals, to describe protesters who are concerned about the shooting of a black man by a uniformed police officer as beasts and animals and so on. I challenge the media to consider why do you think that person speaks for the police department? The chief of police is named Richard Ross. He is a very progressive African-American career police officer, and he and I are getting along famously. He's the one who orders his brass to do things on the street. And while I have no control over them, nor do I pretend to want it. So, you know, Commissioner Ross and I have each other on cell phones, speak frequently, and have a very, very constructive relationship. Before we said that we were not going to prosecute marijuana possession anymore, I informed him so that he would have the ability to make his own decision about whether he really wanted to arrest or simply write a ticket, which is available for marijuana possession as an alternative to prosecution. That allowed him to reallocate his resources, not to have frustrated officers wasting their time handcuffing people, taking them to the station when they could simply write a ticket on the street. In the same fashion, I told him in advance that we were not going to continue to lock up sex workers, that we viewed uh, most of them as being victims in the system and that there were other ways to deal with those problems than locking up predominantly women. We let him know in advance. So once again, he would be able to make adjustments within the department that would not be wasteful of resources. The reason we called him is he's the one who controls the department. It is not the head of the union who sits around in a union office. It's not him. And he also does not control the opinions of a very diverse police force. 25 to 30 percent of these officers are officers of color. The African-American Officers Association, the Guardian, civically endorsed me, okay? Endorsed me when I ran for district attorney. The, they also endorsed Hillary Clinton while the senior members of the Fraternal Order of Police endorsed Donald Trump. This is in a city that was 85% against Donald Trump. It was only 15% for Donald Trump. And yet we find the head of that union is so out of touch with the average Philadelphian so out of touch with his black officers, and frankly, so out of touch with many of the white officers of goodwill that they went that particular direction. So, you know, I respectfully say to the press, because I hear this question a lot, why do you think that this particular member of the union speaks for police? 
He most certainly doesn't. The other side of it, though, and I have to say this in defense of my friends in the media, is what a lot of them don't realize is that people who are employed by the city are not allowed to take a political position. So the police commissioner couldn't take a political position while the head of the union, because he's not really a police officer, could say whatever he wanted to say. And so I think that, uh, you know, there was not stereo here. We were not hearing in three dimensions what people thought. We were hearing what a particular union leader whose job it is, frankly, to uh, excuse the inexcusable when we have the occasional officer who is corrupt or brutal had to say. So you're charging a former police officer, uh, Ryan Ponell, with homicide, among other things, um, for shooting and killing David Jones last year. So the officer was white. He frisked Jones, who was black, found a handgun. Jones tossed it and ran, and the officer shot him in the back and killed him. And so you are um, you are charging that former officer. And this is also related to, obviously, a chronic problem in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia police have shot and killed something like 50 people since 2010. Um, but no officer has been charged with a homicide since 1999. So how are you dealing with that? And how does that affect your relationship with the force? Well, I think, I think it's, it's uh, indicative of the last question, too. So we have uh, an officer, and I can't talk too much about things that have not been publicly reported because it is a case that has not gone to trial yet. But we we have an officer who is charged with homicide. Uh, the evidence in the case shows that two shots entered the back of uh, Mr. Jones, who died. The evidence in the case, and this was not only my determination in reviewing my file, but we brought about a grand jury, and the grand jury found in its publicly available presentment that at the time that Mr. Jones was shot, he was unarmed. He was not turning in a threatening manner. Uh, there's no indication that something was seen in his hands that was threatening, and yet the officer fired uh, at Mr. Jones and killed him by shooting him through the back at a time when he was completely unarmed. If we are to have an even-handed standard of justice, then we have to take that seriously and be willing to prosecute. The fact that there has been no prosecution of a uniformed officer for activity like that in 19 years, frankly, tells you everything you want to know about the double standard that has applied in this city and many other cities for a very long time when it came to police shootings and, and or police violence. And we're only now beginning to see, for example, in Dallas with a, a recent conviction or in the Carolinas with a conviction for violation of uh, civil rights. We're only now beginning to see any level of accountability because even when these cases are brought, juries frequently reject them or judges find ways around them. Uh, you know, that's essential. But look again, as we talk about the police, at what they have to say. That officer was fired. I repeat, fired by the police commissioner. Fired. And the, what the union head has to say is that it is a terrible thing that we would prosecute this man, that he should be back on the force, despite the fact that this is not even the first time that officer has shot someone through the back. All of that has been reported previously. We cannot have a situation where officers repeatedly engage in violence that is a violation of the Constitution, that violates the standards of the department, and that constitutes a crime, and they are simply put back on the force. It creates a culture that enables violence against individuals, and that violence leads to a distrust which is justified on the part of the communities affected, which leads to their not giving information to police to solve homicides. There is a very direct connection between the abuses of illegal stop and frisk, the abuses of violence for which, um, you know, the small number of officers who have committed it are never accountable, 
and the reality that we can't solve crimes because those neighborhoods are so adverse to the unfair treatment that they're getting from police that they will not give police information allowing us to solve homicides. We have to unite people. We have to be willing to apply justice in an even-handed way. We have to do that or we are not going to be able to be safer and to rebuild society. Now, part of what you're talking about is prosecutorial discretion. You're making different choices about who to charge and for what. And you made reference to the fact that you had discussed with the police commissioner no longer prosecuting marijuana offenses. Can you talk to me about some of the other things that you are not interested in prosecuting? Well, I can speak in general terms that, you know, there's what we're not interested in prosecuting and that there, and then there's what we're over prosecuting. These are closely related. Um, I'm not interested in prosecuting mental illness. I'm not interested in prosecuting addiction. I'm not interested in prosecuting marijuana, which is a drug that's probably better for you than beer. It certainly kills fewer people. Uh, I am not interested in prosecuting poverty. I know that those are generalizations and I'm not really getting into all the nuts and bolts, but it takes many different manifestations. Uh, It is crucial what we have done in terms of changing our policy around bail because bail all by itself was abusing and oppressing poor people. It was abusing and oppressing black people because what it meant was that for people who had a couple dollars, they could get out for minor offenses. And when they didn't, it is their poverty that would keep them in jail because they simply couldn't pay a few dollars. It was bankrupting taxpayers by costing us far more to incarcerate than the bail that was asked. It was not doing anything to make people show up in court more regularly. Uh, And so what we did is we found about 25 or 26 crimes that are not violent, that are not uh, sex offenses, that don't fall into some other bad categories. And we decided that they were minor enough that we would have a presumption of not asking for money to be an aspect of bail. That system has worked beautifully. People are showing up for court. Taxpayers are not getting hit for $135 a day to keep them in jail. Um, And yet we have a significant reduction in the county jail population that is not leading to some sort of an increase in crime. In fact, crime overall is down very slightly in Philadelphia, despite the fact that in nine months, we have gone from about 6,500 people in county jail to 5,000, and we have managed to close one of our four jails. That's, that's something we did. Now, I, I get it. That's wonky. That's inframarginal. But it is a very direct attack, frankly, by this administration on a system that relied on poverty as a, as a way to punish people. We've done the same thing with sentencing. There are sentencing guidelines in Pennsylvania. They're mostly passed by a bunch of upstate legislators who've done nothing in criminal justice, who are motivated politically, and who want the money and the power that comes from incarcerating Philadelphians in their upstate rural communities. It serves their economy by employing people in the state jails that are there. It serves their political interest in terms of gerrymandering because bodies transported from Philly to Center County are counted in Center County when they're incarcerated there. And it also serves them in other ways by giving them things like highway funds based upon having Philadelphians stuck in their jails, even though we all know Philadelphians stuck in their jails aren't driving on those roads. It has become a beautiful engine of power and money upstate. And that's why they passed sentencing guidelines that didn't just give us mass incarceration at the appalling level of the United States, but that are even worse, that get us to the point where the country's 500% increased and we're 800% increased, right? So we looked at those guidelines and for the same kinds of offenses, meaning nonviolent offenses, offenses that are not sex offenses, we said the offer on these cases has to be below the bottom end of the guidelines. Why? Because the guidelines are too damn high. That's why. 
And by doing that, what we have seen again is that in the county facilities, we have this reduction. We have an unprecedented reduction in terms of the number of people per day who are being removed from that incarceration. And we have the closing of a jail. And yet we have crime overall down approximately 1% in the city. And we have violent crime down about 6% in the city of Philadelphia. So all the predictions that letting those 1,500 people, those savages, out was going to lead to the city burning and your loved one being snatched and grabbed out the back door turn out to be just as stupid as all the predictions that when you end illegal stop and frisk in New York, crime is going to skyrocket. Didn't happen there. Didn't happen here. This is all a scam. We have been fed a scam for decades by politicians who used fear to launder taxpayers' money into jail cells, into votes, and it is time to stop and say, uh-uh, we are not doing this anymore. In in New York, of course, when um, police more or less went on strike to protest de Blasio, in fact, there was absolutely no change in crime, which was sort of incredible. And I felt sort of uh, did not serve their purposes in doing that work stoppage. Um, something I want to address is that in this sort of move towards ending mass incarceration and in changing public opinion about mass incarceration, we do talk a lot about nonviolent drug offenses, low-level drug offenses. But the fact is, if we're going to get back to even the incarceration levels of the 70s, we would have to start reducing sentences for violent crimes. And that's something that people actually don't like to talk about as much because it's uncomfortable. And so I wonder if you could speak to that, whether thinking through that as part of your program, um, you know, you've taken a lot of heat for, you know, I'm thinking of the recent case of Michael White. Um, who uh, stabbed and killed someone. People don't think that you are charging him harshly enough. Um, And so I wonder if you could speak to that and talk about the relationship between um, sentencing for actually for violent crimes and mass incarceration. Sure, I'll talk about that. Although I should say my perception of how the Michael White case has been uh, taken is actually quite different than that. You know, the Michael White case, again, is a case that has not been tried Yet, but this is one of a a large group of homicide cases where instead of simply charging the highest charge and waiting for a jury to reject a bunch of those charges later, we made a decision very early to look closely at the evidence. And we found a place that was in between no charges and the highest homicide charge. In fact, it's the second highest homicide charge that we thought was appropriate based on the information we had. Um, And I think that's been very well received because people are tired of prosecutors passing the buck and not screening cases properly and then blaming the judge or blaming the jury when the judge and jury do the right thing after the DA didn't do it from the beginning. Um, Violent crime is in fact part of what we are going to have to address and how it is treated in court in order to reduce mass incarceration. You are correct about that. However, we are at software 1.0 when it comes to some of these reforms. All of the policies of this office are viewed that way as a policies that are evolving and so that we can move forward quickly and step by step with that. That is part of the reason we started out initially simply considering violent crimes to be a category. Now, as you and I both know, violent crime can describe many, many things. It can describe two kids in a schoolyard, one of whom punches the other, which in my day, meant somebody went to this, the principal's office. But uh, for a time in Philadelphia and currently in many other cities, it meant you went to juvenile court for aggravated assault because somebody had a black eye. Well, that is an excessively punitive, ridiculous approach to dealing with ordinary stuff that kids do. 
The framework that a lot of organizers and activists are using right now to talk about ending mass incarceration is prison abolitionism. So the idea that we're moving towards uh, getting rid of anything that looks like a prison as we know it today. Do you consider yourself a prison abolitionist? No, I don't. Um, I, you know, I'm very hopeful that I will look like an old uh, conservative in 25 years and that someone will have figured out a reason why we don't need to have Charles Manson or the Zodiac Killer in jail. But it is my opinion that Charles Manson and the Zodiac Killer need to be in jail and that they are not the only ones who need to be in jail. I think it is a much, much smaller number than we have now. But even if we look back to the days before mass incarceration, it is not the case that no one was in jail. You know, jail serves many different purposes, but one of the purposes it does serve is to keep people dangerous to their neighbors and truly dangerous in a way that cannot be uh, addressed simply or easily in jail. Charles Manson needed to die in jail. I am sorry, folks, but that is reality. And while I think that there are very few people in that category, there are some, and that's why I'm not a prison abolitionist. Larry Krasner, thank you so much. Larry Krasner may have introduced sweeping changes to the Philly DA's office, but he's just one of thousands of top prosecutors across the country. We wanted to take a step back. Where did mass incarceration begin? And what role have prosecutors historically played? Is it a false hope that we can have a progressive prosecutor when the role of the office is to put people in prison? To answer these questions, I spoke to Josie Duffy Rice, a lawyer, essayist, and senior reporter for The Appeal, where she also hosts the podcast Justice in America. Welcome, Josie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I want to take us back to the beginning of this story. And when people today are talking about mass incarceration, they're really referring to a trend in American criminal justice that started in the 1970s. So can you take us back for a second? What happened at that time? What changed? The answer is a little bit more nebulous than you would think. There is a recent book by Elizabeth Hinton called um, From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, and it posits the theory that actually mass incarceration as we know it got started under Lyndon Johnson when he kind of expanded federal power and control over policing, when he started um, kind of funneling money to local police departments, and when he started trying to take the narrative of being tough on crime from Republicans as sort of a campaign advantage in a way that made it bipartisan. And that is kind of how it has stuck, you know, until now, right? Like tough on crime is played by both sides. I think that the way that what we see now, it's been an upward, it's been sort of like, I was gonna say upward slope, but clearly downward slope since then. Nixon coming in and saying, you know, he doesn't think that any sort of social circumstances, uh, material indicators, discrimination, none of these actually impact whether or not someone uh, commits crime, that crime is committed by criminals and they we could get rid of crime if we increase convictions by tenfold. You know, Reagan obviously didn't help with the drug war and um, the increase in immigration policy. Bill Clinton was horrible after the 1994 crime bill where three strikes um, increased and he reduced protections for people on death row. Um, and then, like, 
Bush with prosecuting people for material support, in other words, having conversations online that he thinks were terrorism. In other words, like I would not actually say that there's a point at which we could say mass incarceration started. I think we could say the infrastructure for mass incarceration began under Lyndon Johnson, that the money and the resources began under Lyndon Johnson, and that the rhetoric that persists today really just was um, repeatedly emphasized by Nixon and then Reagan. I mean, the amount of times that these men stood up and said, there's no money we could spend on social programs that would stop crime. There's no investment we could make as a government that would stop crime. The only way to stop crime is to punish people swiftly and quickly. And so much of this system is in the rhetoric. A lot of it is we talk about the numbers and the numbers do matter, but the ups and downs are going to continue to be relatively high until we shift the rhetoric. And that rhetoric, as we know it today, started, unsurprisingly, post-civil rights movement with, with Nixon. So crime has been declining since the early mid-90s, and there are definitely people who make the case that this means that mass incarceration has given us a safer society, that tough-on-crime kind of works, um, and I suspect that you would take issue with that narrative. Um, I'll tell you a few things I think are wrong with that. One is that thinking about crime as a national number, thinking about crime sort of overall, it's not really useful. In most places in America right now, you could leave your most precious belongings and your child out on the street. You could leave your door unlocked. You could, you know, you you could live a life completely carelessly and never, ever be subjected to crime, really. I mean, in most places in America, as America gets more segregated and more economically segregated, are just safe by every definition of the word. On the other hand, um, there are places right now that are more dangerous and more tough to live in, where there's more crime than there ever has been in the past. These are neighborhoods. These are mostly poor neighborhoods. And what we know is that these are the places that are over-policed, right? If you're in Baltimore, people like to talk about how bad the crime is in Baltimore. Turns out the police were also extremely corrupt in Baltimore. When you are in St. Louis, or as every you know, as everybody on the right likes to bring up the South Side of Chicago, all of this narrative of these places being full of crime because there's not enough law, law enforcement, and on the other side, there's less crime because there was more law enforcement. It just doesn't play out on the numbers because in reality, this is a local issue. These things change neighborhood to neighborhood. Police presence changes neighborhood to neighborhood. Arrests change neighborhood to neighborhood. Crimes that they'll arrest for change neighborhood to neighborhood. I just find that statistic to be sort of generally misleading. I think the other two things I would say quickly, one of them is just that What's a crime? You know, it sort of depends on where you are. In Ferguson, jaywalking was a crime. Your pants sagging was a crime. Leaving your um, trash can on the wrong side of the driveway was a crime for people. I mean, in some places, you, you're criminalized for anything. In other places, you can get away with, you know, almost everything. Around half to 60% of murders are solved at any given point. Like, we, we live in a in a world where we use the word crime as if it means something, and it just frankly doesn't mean much. So the crime rate going up and down, it's true that like being on the subway in New York City today is much safer than it was in the mid-80s. There's no question about that. But in general, this is just not measurable in the way that it sounds. It's it's, um, misleadingly simple. Like you can have a society with no crime. It's totally possible. If 
everybody in that country is terrified of their government. There's no freedom. There's no liberty. This is a trade-off that we always have to try to balance and that we're never going to totally get right. But the hope is that we make sure that people can live safely um, while also maintaining a sense of freedom and opportunity for people. And so this idea that crime is only coming from other civilians, it forgets the other side of the equation, which is that, yeah, crime among civilians has gone down since the mid-90s and Meanwhile, more more people are in prison, more crime, what I would argue by the state has has gone up. So, you know, to be able to do sort of a cost benefit analysis of that is quite is, is really difficult. And often the second part of that is left out of the conversation. In thinking about this question of sort of rebalancing, if you will, I spoke with Larry Krasner also for this episode, um, Philly's DA. Um, and as, Heard of him. <laughs> as you know uh, extremely well, um, progressives in the last few years have been very focused on prosecutor elections, which was previously, I would say, a realm of politics that was fairly obscure to a lot of Americans and is now kind of taking center stage. So I wonder if you can walk me through... First, why prosecutors are so important in this system and why they've become a focus of so much progressive organizing just recently. So prosecutors um, have always been important and, and arguably the most powerful player in this system, depending on the crime and the location and the court. And, you know, there are a lot of variables here. But as a general rule, prosecutors have just an enormous amount of power. It's an amount of power that's been growing over the past 30 or so years, especially as mandatory minimums became more common. Plea deals have become more common. Judges have, the power of a judge has sort of been reduced mainly by those I wouldn't. I don't know if mainly, but largely by those two um, factors. And prosecutors have become more more powerful. Meanwhile, we've hired a ton of new prosecutors, even as crime has gone down. We have reduced transparency as we've given them more power, and. I think those are some of the reasons that people did not realize how important prosecutors are is because it's just not really out there. They're not on the streets, right, patrolling um, the way that police are. And you're, you're not seeing the inside of prisons. You're not you, seeing the inside of a prosecutor's office doesn't evoke what seeing the inside of a prison does. But they control the whole middle ground, right? You get arrested from the charge to the arraignment to setting bail to uh, a plea to going, you know, to an actual trial, to calling for a certain conviction, all of these things prosecutors are, are control. They functionally control it. I mean, you've spoken before about plea deals that, you know, 97% yeah. of cases are resolved in a plea deal, at which point the prosecutor is essentially judge and jury. Everything. Exactly. Exactly. Anywhere from about 94 to 97% of cases, depending on the state, um, are settled through guilty pleas. Um, and part of that is because prosecutors have the power to coerce you to settle something uh, through guilty pleas. I was just reading a story about a woman who was picked up on a, on a drug sting and actually ended up being innocent. But when she said she wanted to go to trial, the prosecutor said, well, you could get anywhere from five to 99 years, or you can plea and I'll give you seven. I mean, everybody in the world would take that deal. <laughs> I mean, I, I would certainly take that deal. And the prosecutor 
has the power to decide that it's from five to 99 years. He could not charge her. He could charge her with something less. He could charge her with something more. You know, that all of that is controlled by this this person. But like you said, they just traditionally have gotten so little attention. And when they did get attention, it was who was tougher on crime. I mean, that has been the narrative around prosecutors for decades, I mean, forever. And that meant that in every jurisdiction, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you are sort of running these same sort of ads. I won't let this guy out. I have a 97% conviction rate, which, by the way, is not that impressive when 97% of your cases are plead, you plead guilty. That means you never went at trial. Right. But I mean, anyway. which has all raised the question of like whether there's such a thing as a progressive prosecutor. Like we're talking yes. to Krasner. He sounds pretty different from other prosecutors. But given their particular role in the system, can you have a good one? I grapple with this a lot, right? And I've been kind of singularly focused on prosecutors for the past about three years. And when I started covering them as a journalist, I was the only person covering them in the nation sort of full time. And this guy won in Caddo Parish, Louisiana, which is a small, a small, it's actually sort of near Shreveport. And he had beaten a guy who basically was part of a team in the office that was basically saying we should use the death penalty more. He had gone on 60 Minutes and been like, we need more death penalty. The problem is we don't kill enough people in America. Um, and and it made sort of a splash. And in, and his opponent won, a black guy who was a judge. And it was a, it was a huge deal. I mean, it was a huge deal in a way that like right now it would not be that big of a deal. At that That was a point at which literally everybody in this community, which was not that many people doing prosecutor reform work, was... Like, if this is all that happens to us, we were happy because, like, this is what we've been wanting for so long. And we finally have someone out because they were too tough on crime. You know, since then, like now, I would say the most progressive prosecutor in the nation is Larry Krasner. And he is miles ahead on policy and I think ideology than James Stewart and Caddo Parish. So in three years, we've come a really really long way on what it means to be a progressive prosecutor. At the end of the day, your job is still putting people through the system, punishing them. You're still sending people to prison. I don't know that it could never be progressive, but I do think it is for a certain type of person. Larry may or may not be the, I mean, the alternative to that or the exception to that rule. And I don't say that in any disparaging way. I think Larry's great. It's not a job I could do. It's just not a job I, I could do. So I admire people who are progressive and, and are able to do it because I think it's really tough. I don't know that that job can ever be a job that focuses on liberation or freedom or improving access for people. It is always about punishment. That is its role in the system. And, and if that's what we're always sort of grappling with, what does that mean to play that, to be the person in the system that is A, representing the state, and B, pushing to punish people. Josie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah. The movement against mass incarceration has produced a pretty stunning change. Whereas prosecutors once uniformly ran on a tough-on-crime platform, reformers today, like Larry Krasner, are getting elected running on the polar opposite, ending mass incarceration. And Krasner's not alone. Most recently, we've seen the election of Wesley Bell in St. Louis, Rachel Rollins in Boston, 
And with many more prosecutors up for election in 2020, it's clear that this movement to replace tough-on-crime prosecutors is just getting started. That's it for this week's show. What's Left is produced by me, Sarah Leonard, Patrick McMenamin, Ben Dalton, Dara Levy, Dan Bowza, and Jake Bunger. What's Left is a production of BuzzFeed News Opinion. 